invite you to join me in John 18, if you are not already there. John 18. As we already saw, we'll be in verses 28 to 40 this morning. John 18, 28 to 40. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, and as we have read your word, as we have proclaimed the truth of the gospel through song, we have meditated on the cross of Christ. And so even as we just confessed in song, we are compelled to proclaim the all-surpassing glory of your name. These glorious truths of the cross of Christ, of his death for us, lead us to fall on our knees and to worship. And Heavenly Father, this morning we cry out, Worthy! is the lamb that was slain. Worthy are you, Father, who sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we look at this passage that our eyes would be open to the great debt that we owe and to the glorious grace of God for us in Christ, that we would be moved to respond and worship the one who is worthy. I pray that you'd be honored in all that is said and done in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. And Bob Jones University, they meet every single day for chapel. From seventh grade, at least when I was there, from seventh grade all the way through four years of college, we would go and we would join the university with chapel. And every day at 11 o'clock, they would open chapel by saying the university creed. You would think after saying it that many times, I'd have it down, memorized, and I pretty much do, but I printed it off just to be safe. The Bob Jones University Creed that I've repeated hundreds of times in my life says this, We believe in the inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, His identification as the Son of God, His vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of His blood on the cross, the resurrection of His body from the tomb, his power to save men from sin, the new birth through the regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life by the grace of God. Those are truths that the whole university family would proclaim together every single day before chapel. And saying it so many times, sadly, even though there's some rich truth in that, as you say it so many times, over and over and over, just like anything else, often our minds kind of grow numb to it. We don't pay attention to what we're saying. We're just saying it. 
But there's one line in there that always, always stood out to me. From the first time as a seventh grader, as I stood in chapel and said it, to the last day I said it as a university senior. It's that one line in the very middle that says this, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross. I don't know why that one line stood out to me. It's probably just because of that one word, that big word that we don't use very often, vicarious. It's one of those things you're saying as you move throughout this, all the other words are pretty understandable. And you get to that one line, his vicarious atonement for the sins of mankind. It stands out. It grabs your attention. What does that mean? Vicarious atonement. It's an important word. It's a key word. It's a key line. It's an important word to understand. In today's language, we would more often use the phrase substitutionary. His substitutionary atonement. But the idea is the same, and it's that Christ died for me. That he took my place. As we come to John 18, 28 to 40 this morning, this is a truth that we see very plainly and literally in this passage. The vicarious death of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this passage this morning, may the Lord grip us with this reality. May it take hold of our hearts and lead us to worship our great God. This morning as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see a sovereign God, an innocent king, and a guilty man. A sovereign God, an innocent king, and a guilty man. The first thing we see in verses 28 to 32 is a sovereign God. I mentioned last week as we launched into John 18, Leon Moore, I read that Leon Morris quote where he kind of gives a foundation, a, a way to understand everything that is going on in John 18 and following. And you might remember in that, the thing he mentioned was that God is sovereign through all of this through the betrayal of Jesus Christ, through Peter's denial, even through the, the trial before Pilate, even as the soldiers take Christ and they beat him and they whip him as they hang him on a cross. All throughout John 18 and the following chapters, we see that God is sovereign through all of it. John gives little clues, little hints to that, to remind us that, that despite all of this, God is still in control. So as we come to verse 28, we see that there's a change of scene. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium. From Annas and Caiaphas, from the Jewish leaders to the Roman leaders. The Praetorium, it's the, the headquarters in Jerusalem for Pilate. Pilate is in town this time, around this, the, the feast, the Passover. He is there, he's, in, he, he's available, and his headquarters in Jerusalem during this time is the Praetorium. So they're leading Jesus from Annas and Caiaphas, from Jewish leaders to Pilate. Roman leaders. 
And as you come to this passage, one thing we'll see throughout here is the very, Pilate makes it very clear that he is the one who has power here. And yet what we'll see is that it's actually God who's in control. So they led him from Caiaphas to the Praetorium to Pilate, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Once again, John is rich with irony. All throughout the book, we've seen time and time again the rich irony that John brings out in the story. As we come to this verse, verse 28, we once again see irony. And the irony is this. It carries over from what we saw last week. Last week, as, as they held their own little trial for Jesus. And what is the one thing that we saw? That in that trial, they threw aside all regard for the law. They weren't trying to be fair. They weren't trying to be right. They had an agenda, and they were pushing it. And yet... We come here and we see that, that their complete disregard for the law, that they completely disregarded the law for their purposes and questioning Jesus, and yet here their law, their zeal for the law returns. Now they're worried about it once again. And the reality that we see in verse 28 compared to the first 27 verses is this. So their bodies may be ceremonially clean. Their hearts are dark. They love the law, yet they don't recognize the lawgiver. Pilate contrasts with these unjust judges. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Unlike the chief priest, Pilate stands out as a good judge. He asks for evidence. He begins a trial. Bring forth your accusation and your proof. In verse 30, we find a surprising, shockingly agitated response. So they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's a shocking response, considering that they need Pilate to give them what they want. You would think they'd be groveling before him. It's a, shock, it's, it's a response that clues us in to something. To the reality that there's likely more going on here than we are told about here in John. In fact, there's evidence very clearly all throughout this passage that this trial was not a surprise to Pilate. There's evidence that the chief priests have already actually presented their case to Pilate prior to going and arresting Jesus. And there seems to have been an expectation that Pilate would back them up, would give them what they desired in the, the desired ruling that they had. And this would explain their surprise and their agitation that Pilate wants to now hold a trial. There are several evidences of this. The first thing we see in verse 3 of chapter 18 is the reality that Roman troops go to arrest Jesus. They could not have gotten Roman troops, that cohort, to go with Judas. So the Romans are involved from the very beginning. 
Secondly, in verse 33, notice what Pilate says. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called to Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He's clearly already had a conversation with these Jewish leaders, and this is how they've tried to spin it to him, to get him to give them what they want. There's prior knowledge. Jesus' response in verse 33, 34, Are you speaking for yourself, or did others tell you this? So there's evidence all throughout this passage that there's been a prior conversation, a prior expectation of these religious leaders that Pilate would go along with what they wanted. And so now they're, they're agitated, they're surprised. We, we thought you were going to go along with us. What do you mean we've already presented you our evidence? Notice Pilate's response in verse 31. Will you take him and judge him according to your law? And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate here puts them in their place, forcing them to confess their subservience to him and to Rome. All right, fine. Do it your way then. You go put him to death. Forcing them to admit, we can't. We need you. There's definitely politics that are going on here behind the scene. There's probably a sense that Pilate is somewhat enjoying this a bit as he flexes his muscles before these religious leaders, reminding them, putting them in their place. And yet here in verse 32, John reminds us of the reality that behind all of the politics and the pride, there's a sovereign God who's perfectly unfolding his plan. And he reminds us that with this in verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. All of this is going on that his word might be fulfilled. That the Son of Man must be lifted up, as we see in John 3.14. The reality is that left to the Jews, if Pilate would have said, go and do what you want with him, Jesus would have likely been stoned. But under Roman rule, he will be lifted up on a cross. He will be crucified. So all this is happening so that God's word might be fulfilled. Throughout this entire thing, God is in complete control. And don't lose that reality. Don't forget that. As Christ is betrayed, as he is denied, as he is delivered to Pilate, even in this passage, as he's declared innocent and yet still is, go, goes to be beaten and crucified. As he is hanging on that cross all throughout all of it, God is in complete control. And don't you forget it. And John reminds us of that here. Behind all of this, there's a sovereign God. The second thing we see in verses 33 to 38 is an innocent king. You come to verse 33, it shifts back indoors as Pilate entered the praetorium again. So he's gone outdoors to meet these religious leaders who won't come into the praetorium. He's interacted with them. Now he goes back in to where Jesus is. He called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king 
of the juice. Again, that is a question that is pregnant with meaning. And it hints at the nature of Pilate's conversation with the Jewish leaders prior to this. You see, the Jewish leaders, their problem with Jesus is theological. But if they tried to explain that to Pilate, they would not have gotten the outcome that they desire. Pilate is not going to condemn someone to die over a theological difference that Pilate probably doesn't understand himself. So they seem to have packaged their charges against Jesus to Pilate in political language that he would understand. And the way that they did that was to say this. He has claimed to be the king of the Jews. He is a threat to you politically. Hence, Jesus' answer in verse 34, well, what exactly do you mean? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? See, this is an important distinction. Because as we will see, the answer in reality is yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. But not in terms that Pilate as a Roman governor would understand. An illustration that we would understand today probably with pretty much the very same charged political backdrop would be if someone were to come up to you and ask, are you a Trump supporter? There's a lot in that question, is there not? They could be asking two very different things. They could be asking merely, did you vote for Trump? because you agreed politically with him, you thought he was the better option, or they could be asking, are you committed to him personally, a la the media's extreme portrayal? When they ask that question, you don't know what they're asking. You don't know what they're, in their mind, what a Trump supporter is. Is it just someone who voted for him, or is it the extreme portrayal that the media puts forth? Those are two very different things. In a sense, that's what's going on here. This is a very charged accusation, and there's a lot of meaning, and it could mean two different things. And so Jesus is here asking, are you asking with context and with understanding if I'm the king of the Jews, or are you merely repeating the propaganda told to you by the chief priests who have an agenda? Will you understand if I answer honestly? In verse 35, we see Pilate's answer. He says, am I a Jew? There's clear frustration here. Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, delivered you to me. What have you done? Pilate is here likely getting frustrated between the back and forth between Jesus and the chief priests. I, I don't know. I don't know. This is between you guys. I don't know what I mean. I'm merely repeating the charges brought to you by your own people. Clearly you've done something to stir up such a response. I don't know. Pilate is no dummy, and likely he suspects that if the Jewish leaders are trying to help him here, 
that there's ulterior, ulterior motives to that. And so he's trying to get to the bottom of that. And so he asks you, well, what have you done? I, I don't know. I mean, this is between you guys. They're the ones who brought you to me. I don't know. What have you done? This gives Jesus the opportunity to answer Pilate's question honestly, defining his kingdom. Jesus goes on in verse 36, and he answered, My kingdom is not of this world. That implies the answer to Pilate's question is, Yes, I am the king of the Jews. I am a king, but not as a political threat to Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. My reign does not have an earthly origin, but a heavenly origin. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Verse 36 through 37 defines Christ's kingdom, giving context to Pilate. The context that he so lacked in verse 33 when he asked, are you the king of the Jews? And also, as we'll see, it gives instruction to us today as the church. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. If Jesus had earthly goals of conquest, he would have employed earthly measures. But I'm not a threat. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Or, more positively, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you have said rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Not to conquer, but that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. This is Jesus' answer to Pilate's question. Yes, I am a king. But not in the political sense that you think. Jesus is not concerned with the politics of men, but with the souls of men. Are you a king that, yes, yes, I am a king. As we come to this passage, there's not just context for Pilate here, there's teaching for us here. Because what we see here is that Christ's kingdom is not revolved around politics. As Christ is not concerned with the politics of men, but with the souls of men here in John 18, so the church does not go forth through political conquest, but through gospel proclamation. As Christ proclaimed, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Not because of political power or influence, but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My goal is advanced not through conquest, but through proclamation. That's what we see here. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. That is my goal, not to conquest, but to proclaim the truth. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm here to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. I'm here to bring life. 
Now there is a sense when in the end, at the second coming, Christ's kingdom will have political power. But it will not arise from earth. It will descend from heaven. And so Jesus is saying, in the sense in which you are thinking, I'm not a political king. I'm not here to overthrow you. I'm here to bring life and life more abundant. I'm here to proclaim the Father. I'm here to open the eyes of the blind. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I am here to bear witness to the truth, not to overthrow the Roman government. I'm not here to, to free the Jewish nation from captivity. I'm here to proclaim the truth. I'm here as a light shining in the darkness. And again, that ties into what we, as a church, do today. Our goal is not to conquer Altoona. It's to reach Altoona with the gospel. It's not that as we, we go and conquer politically, that Christ's kingdom advances in the world. No. We are called to be ambassadors. We are called to be good citizens. We are called to share the gospel, to make disciples. So here we see the nature of Christ's kingdom. It is not a political kingdom. His goal is not to overthrow. His goal is to proclaim. And what's phenomenal is here at the very end of this, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. I will succeed. The gospel will go forth. And even in that, there's a hint that there is an invitation to his judge, Pilate, to believe and follow. He invites his judge to follow him. Won't you believe? Verse 38, Pilate said to him, this is how Pilate's response, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. What is truth? That's likely a passing, uninterested comment with no interest in an answer. And yet, it's the right question. And like, like Caiaphas in John 11.50, where he says, better, it's better for one man to die for the people than for all the people to die. So here, Pilate asks the right question. He says the right thing, yet he has no idea how close to the truth he actually is. That the one person who can actually answer that question is standing right in front of him. And he has no idea. He throws it out there as a passing comment. What is truth? As he goes back out to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in him at all. What we see here is that Pilate comes to understand enough to know that Jesus is not a political threat. Proclaims him innocent. And that should be the end of the matter. He's innocent. That's it. And for some reason he offers a trade. That's what we see now. A guilty man. 
but. I find no fault in him at all. He is innocent, but. You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Why? If Jesus is innocent, why does Pilate then offer this trade? To release him. He should be released anyways if he's innocent. There's a couple options that people have put forth. It could be to just cover Pilate's own tail. It could be that he's kind of scared of the people, so he doesn't want to just let him go. He wants to kind of let him go. At their, he, he's innocent. You should let him go. It could be as a way to help the leaders save some face. These leaders who've, been, who've gathered this crowd, who've made this big stink, who have brought Jesus all the way there, maybe it's, it's an opportunity for them to kind of save face. It could have been an opportunity for him to mock the religious leaders as the people choose to let Jesus go. If we're showing the deep divide between the, the leaders and the people, we don't know. We're not told. We don't know what was going through Pilate's mind at this moment as he offers up an innocent man. But we see the response in verse 40. And they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. That word robber can carry the idea of insurrection. In fact, the other Gospels help us to see that Barabbas is not just a petty thief. He is a murdering revolutionary. And yet, they cry for Barabbas' release. While Jesus, who is innocent, who has been lied about by the chief priests, is found guilty. They choose a man guilty of heinous crimes who stands as a real threat to Roman rule. That's irony in here again. Here is a man who is the very thing that the religious leaders told Pilate that Jesus was. Barabbas is the real threat. He is exactly what they said Jesus was. And yet they choose to let him go and keep Jesus. And thus the innocent takes the place of the guilty charged falsely for the very crime that Barabbas is guilty of. And condemned. An innocent man condemned to die for the crimes of a guilty man. That is the definition of that word that we looked at earlier, vicarious or substitute. Jesus dies as a substitute for Barabbas. He takes his place. Barabbas is guilty. Barabbas deserves to die. Jesus has been found innocent. He does not. And yet Jesus takes his place. And it's a very practical picture of us for the vicarious or substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is what the gospel tells us as we back up from John 18 and we take a bird's eye view 
at the New Testament, at the Bible, what we see is that you and I are like Barabbas. Jesus does not just die for Barabbas. He dies for your sin. He takes your place. That passage we read earlier, Isaiah 53, 5-6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. It is not Jesus who deserved to die. It is you who deserve to die. It is I who deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. And yet Jesus dies for you. He takes your place. He bears your sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gift of God. Jesus dies in your place. He takes your sin and he offers you life by faith alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish what you deserve but have everlasting life. And that is good news for you and for me. So by way of application, what does this mean? How do we respond to this? Number one, be moved to worship. As we look at a passage such as this, and we meditate upon our sin, we meditate upon what we deserve, and yet we see the grace of God. Be moved to fall and to worship. For he is worthy. And then secondly, be motivated to obey. Be motivated to go. And to share the gospel. To proclaim the truth. Be motivated to worship and be motivated. Be moved to worship and be motivated to obey.